You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, I'm Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. Very glad to have you along with me today. We've got a packed show. We're talking about millennials and money with Erin Lowry, who's got a great new book out. We'll bring her in in a second. But I, I was thinking I'm in the middle of a, a number of things that are reminding me of millennials and money. I'm, I'm writing my column for AARP, the magazine, which is not a millennial audience, but it's on a very millennial topic. It's it's on values-based spending and how we're happier if we can just line our spending up with the things that we value. And I was talking to my son, Jake, who was home for a weekend and, and we were talking about the different things that he'd been doing. And he, like many of his friends, out in Los Angeles where he is working in his first job, earning an hourly wage that's by no means extravagant. He's doing really, really well, sticking to his budget that we set up together. He's earning some overtime, so that's really great. But he and his friends have been obsessed with this show on Netflix called Chef's Table. And they discovered that in and around their Culver City neighborhood, this restaurant called Nanaka is right there. And it, it is, if you haven't watched the Chef's Table episode about this restaurant, you should just download it, stream it, watch it. Very cool. And about six months ago, six of them got together. They made a reservation knowing that this was going to be an incredibly expensive dinner, but something that they really wanted to experience. And so it's been six months. They went to the restaurant. He was telling me bite by bite about the courses. There was some incredible number of them, like 26. And this chef is known for taking notes on what she feeds you and never feeding you the same thing twice. So if he ever goes back again, he's guaranteed to have a totally, totally different meal. But there were drinks matched with the food. It all sounded unbelievable. But then he said, and then I just spent the rest of the weekend in watching movies. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, I spent several hundred dollars on this dinner. I wasn't going to go out and spend more money after that. And I, I thought, you know, that really lines up with this values-based expenditure. It's very millennial. It's very experience-based. He's got a story that he's going to be able to tell about these 26 bites, if that is indeed the right number, for years and years and years. And that is incredibly valuable. And just watching him tell the story the first time, telling it to me, he just lit up. And I thought that is exactly what we should be doing with our money. And with that as sort of a strange introduction, let me introduce all of you to Erin Lowry. Erin is 
a millennial personal finance expert. She's an author. She's a speaker. She's got a very popular blog called Broke Millennial. And her new book, her first book, also called Broke Millennial, Stop Scraping By and Get Your Financial Life Together, is hitting the shelves in May. Erin, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So am I, I, you know, I'm 52. Everybody who's listening knows I'm 52. I can't stop talking about the fact that I can't believe I'm 52. But it, am I right? I mean, this seems very values-y, experiential millennial. So that story kind of cracked me up. I was trying not to giggle while I was over here because you nailed it. I think that that is really one of the markers Maybe one of the positive stereotypes of the millennial generation is that we are very values-based and experiences-based when it comes to spending our money. Now, whether or not you have enough money to actually spend on those experiences is a different question, but it sounds like your son did it right. He saved up, he prepared, and then he budgeted afterwards. So that's exactly what you need to be doing. Excellent. So how has your journey taken you from being a broke millennial to being a successful millennial? Well, a big part of my backstory is my family and how I was raised. And I think that that is something I always have to put out there and sort of preface is I grew up in a house where financial literacy was really important. And my parents were teaching me about money from a very young age. They were using, I would call it the Lowry School of Hard Knocks. There was a lot of (laughs) tough love and very practical methods. And all the way through to my sister and I were required to pay for 50% of our college educations, even though, and I think it's important to mention, my parents could have paid. They had that money set aside, but they thought it was important for us to have a stake in our educations. So we were set up to at 18 when you're not necessarily the most rational thinker to still be able to make a rational decision because we were taught about money. So while I do use the moniker broke millennial, I've never been broke in the sense of massive amounts of debt because I did make my college decision based on coming out debt free. And then once I moved to New York, I was living off of about $23,000 a year that first year. So it wasn't exactly a comfortable living, but I knew how to control my money. And that gave me a lot of freedom and a lot of comfort, even when I wasn't making very much. Let's go back to your upbringing for a second. You said the school of hard knocks. I know you were encouraged to start earning money from a very young age. Tell us about the Krispy Kremes. So this is one of my favorite stories. I jokingly call it my origin story, like I'm some sort of financial superhero. But what happened, it was the summer of 1996, and I was seven years old. And like I said, the 50% rule applied to things that we wanted when we were kids. So if I wanted a stuffed animal at the toy store, I had to pay for 50%. Now, your earning potential is quite limited when you're seven years old. Yes, it is. So uh, my friendship bracelet-making business had failed, and I occasionally watched the cat next door when the neighbors went out of town, but that was only on occasion. Wasn't old enough to babysit yet. So I came up with this idea to sell Krispy Kreme donuts to the haggled shoppers that came in the wee hours of a summer morning to my mom's yard sale. Ah, And in order to do this, I asked my dad to stake me because I didn't have the funds to buy them up front. And obviously, I couldn't drive to go get the donuts. So he gets in the car, goes and picks up the donuts, brings them back. I sell the donuts. My little sister helps me out. I was seven. She was four. And at the end of it, let's say I had earned 20 bucks. So I'm thinking I'm going to Toys R Us and getting like two super soakers, those big water guns from when I was a kid. And my dad goes, well, you've got $20 here. It cost me $8 to buy you the donuts. And your sister worked for you for a little bit. So let's pay her $2. So your net profit is 10 
And then he actually took the money. And I think that that's the important part of this conversation is I was actually only left with the $10. And how, but, but the $10 to a seven year old is still considerable. It is. So how did you feel in that moment? Do you remember? I remember feeling cheated at first because I had had 20 and then all of a sudden it was 10 and then figuring out what I could buy with the remaining money. You know, it's an important lesson. I remember my daughter came home from summer camp one year and ribbon belts were very, very big and she wanted to make ribbon belts. Now, I don't sew. Um, she doesn't sew. And so we thought, okay, we can do this with stitch witchery, which is iron on glue, essentially. But the stitch witchery wouldn't hold the ribbon belts together. And so we figured out the cost of materials. We went to a local um, dry cleaner and said, how much would it cost you to sew these seams? We came back and, and I we sat down with a pencil and paper and figured out, okay, it's this much for the ribbon, it's this much for the seams. And she said, well, when I get done, I'll still make $5. And I said, well, no, because you've got to pay for the ribbons for the next round. And she very quickly realized, like, she was going to make no money from this business. And so she made herself a ribbon belt, and that was the end of it. Yeah, exactly. And it's things like that, as well as my big takeaway is impulse control. And that that story, so I ended up with the $10, but then when I would go shopping, I started to look at money differently. And so even at seven, eight years old, if I wanted something and I knew I had to pay 50%, I remembered how hard it was to earn that $10. And it really, I would carry stuffed animals around stores while my parents shopped because that was what I loved when I was a little kid. And I would look at it at the end and be like... Oh, it's just not worth $8 to me. No, and it's why it's so important that kids work. Yep. You know, whether they work in when they're seven or whether they work in high school and college, because I learned by watching my own children that the money that I gave them in the form of allowance was nowhere near as valuable as the money they earned babysitting or working after school. Absolutely. So talk a little bit about you feel empowered with money. Many millennials don't feel empowered with money. Many millennials, I think, are drawn to your blog because they feel broke and powerless. Why do you think that is? First, it's a mindset shift that needs to happen. Even when you don't have a lot, it's learning how to control what you have. And many of those choices are completely within your control, to use the word again. But if you, you're in control of where you live, how much you're paying for rent, you know, to a degree, healthcare, not so much, but you're also in control of how you learn how to negotiate, whether you can earn more. You're in control of your mindless spending habits and understanding where those are. And so for me, the big focus is cash flow, which is a fancy way of saying budget. And everyone hates talking about the B word. But at the end of the day, if you don't know your cash flow, then you can't control your money. So my first step with everyone is first to kind of think through what maybe some of your psychological blocks are, which we talk through in chapter two of the book. And then moving on from there, you have to figure out your cash flow. Because if you don't know how much is coming in and how much is going out, you have no control. And you also need to face your numbers and know exactly how much debt you have and then create an action plan. When you say know your psychological blockers, what are the most common ones for millennials? I think a lot of it is people telling themselves, 
oh, I'm not good with math, so I'm not good with money. Oh, I can't save. Oh, I don't understand how money works. And I refuse to accept any of these excuses. One, because I'm a journalism and theater double major who hated math all through school. Now, if there's a number sign in front of it, some reason I just like dealing with numbers that way. But there's really not as much math as people think. It's a lot of how you relate to money and understanding how you control money. And that's like the big thing that I'm trying to get people past. Well, you think people should look at their paycheck and think about whether they think of it as a Tinder app or marriage material. Exactly. So I sort of get the analogy, but I think I'll get it better after you explain it. So chapter two is called, Is Money a Tinder Date or Marriage Material? And for the millennial audience, you know, the Tinder is sort of the hit it and quit it is what I call it. Now, some people, you know, find lasting relationships off Tinder, but let's admit that it's more of a hookup app. So I call it the hit it and forget it with your money or the hit it and quit it where... Otherwise, maybe it's maybe it's something that you want to nurture and have a long-lasting relationship and you're looking to save and invest. And whether that's in your romantic relationship or with your money, I would like to transition you from, oh, whatever, I can buy this drink even if it puts me with an overdraft charge on my bank account over to I'm going to pay myself first. I'm going to set a budget. I'm going to contribute to my retirement account. I'm going to know exactly how much I have to spend every month. So we're moving you out of the hit it and quit it over into the long-lasting commitment with your money. And do you find that when people start to take the steps to do it, there's a little bit of fake it till you make it involved? Absolutely. I think that's true in your career. I think that can be true with your money. It's You, first of all, you have to be honest with yourself and with the people that are around you. A big push that I'm making is explaining that while you spend on what you value, you also have to make sure that you are dictating your values and you're not letting other people dictate those values for you or letting other people spend your money. It's very easy to let your friends pick where you're going to dinner, where you're going to brunches, what fun activities you're doing, the trips that you're taking wedding season. That's a big one for millennials right Mm -hmm. now. And it's so easy to let other people spend your money. So you need to be focusing in on what is important to you specifically and putting your money there. We are going to come back and talk a little bit more about your college experience because we're also in college season. It's in full swing. And this idea of coming out debt-free is a big one. But I just want to remind everybody that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. I actually met Erin courtesy of Fidelity Investments. We were at FinCon last year at a very nice event that was for a lot of the women at this convention of financial bloggers. And we got to talk there. So that was terrific. Fidelity is focused on helping women like Aaron, like me, like all of us, take charge of our financial lives because we deserve to live the lives that we've worked so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find many more conversations like this one with Aaron. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married or divorced or starting a new career. Again, that's fidelity.com slash it's time. And Erin, before I turn back to our conversation, I want to tell everyone about another podcast from our partners at PRX. It's called Outside, which brings 
Outside Magazine's tradition of literary storytelling into the audio world. Their new series of dispatches has author Florence Williams profiling extraordinary women in the outdoors, women like big wall climber Beth Rodden, who was once kidnapped while on an expedition in Kyrgyzstan. I can't make this stuff up. They'll also be investigating topics like the surprising history of the sports bra. Find the show at OutsideOnline.com slash podcast on iTunes or anywhere podcasts are found. We are happy to be here with Erin Lowry. Her new book is called Broke Millennial. Take me back to making the decision about college. So your parents decided you were going to pay for half of it, so you knew what you were in for. How did that shape your decision about where to apply and where to go? The one mistake I think that got made is I didn't know 50% until a little late in the game. I knew I was going to be responsible for some of it. I also cockily thought, eh, they probably won't really enforce that. So I think that was my mistake number one. I applied to a lot of schools that were very expensive liberal arts schools. I knew I wanted to be theater and journalism, neither of which have particularly high-paying ROI right out of college. No, they don't. You know, I think that that was really an important thing for me was just thinking through, okay, once I found out 50%, what does this really mean? And my dad, interestingly enough, created two bills. So one of the schools, I had actually already sent in my seat deposit to Wake Forest University in North Carolina. And the other one was to the school that, spoiler, I end up going to, St. Bonaventure University, which is in western New York. And he created two bills, and he slid them across the table to me. And the first one for Wake Forest outlined that I was going to owe between eighty dollars to $100,000 by the time I graduated. At the time, I think Wake, my freshman year, was something like $52,000. And he had adjusted that he thought, you know, price would inflate throughout my four years. Then he brought the Bonaventure bill over, and he goes, well, you've got scholarship money here. It covers a little more than 50% of your tuition. So assuming you keep the scholarship all four years, you will come out debt-free. There was a lot of door slamming and 18-year-old behavior that happened shortly after I went through that process. But I calmed down a few hours later, and I thought about it for a couple of days, and I eventually realized that especially with the majors that I was interested in, and at the time I knew I wanted to move to New York City after college— that coming out debt-free was going to be the bigger advantage over going to a school that was slightly more well-known. And how was your college experience? It was great. I mean, it wasn't exactly what I had pictured in my head. A little backstory, I, I lived overseas in Asia for a good chunk of my childhood, so I had the very sororities and football kind of idea about college. My university had no football team, and it was a Catholic school, so we had no Greek life. So it was a very different <laughs> shift <laughs> from what I was expecting. But, you know, I made long-lasting friends. I met my partner there. I mean, there's so much good came out of it. And I got my gig at The Late Show with David Letterman. I got an internship with CNN. I got my second job out of college all through the network that I made there. So it certainly didn't leave me at a disadvantage career-wise, and I came out debt-free. And as you talk to kids who are looking at going to college now, do you encourage them to do what you did, to look at it as a value proposition? So much. And I really, really like to emphasize this focus that we have on name brand is, I think, detrimental to a lot of kids. Unless you are going for whatever that school is best known for academically, 
don't put so much emphasis on needing the biggest, best name on your resume coming out of college. Because honestly, after your first job or two, people really don't care where you went. They care more about what you've done since. So that's item number one. Number two, there are great networks at almost every school. So if you use your time well to do well in school, connect with professors, connect with alumni, you will be fine. And I will say graduating debt-free is a massive advantage. And even if you go to an amazing top-tier Ivy League school, but you come out with a philosophy degree and $150,000 in debt, well, you're putting yourself at quite a disadvantage compared to somebody who went to a smaller, maybe a state school that's not as well-known or a smaller liberal arts school that came out debt-free. It does not have to pay all of that money And you can back. take more career risk when you're debt-free. Before I let you go, you have a chapter talking about saving. You know, every personal finance book has a chapter on saving. And I know that you hear something I hear all the time, which is that many people look at their budget, they look at their spending, or perhaps they don't look at it, and they think they can't. They, there's just, there's no money to save. I know what I tell them, but I want to know what you tell them. There's a couple things. One, run your cash flow. See if there legitimately is nothing to save. Because sometimes people are, you know, in the negative. They've overspent. So first is to slash and figuring out where you can cut. And that can be negotiating internet bills to reduce the amount. That can be refinancing student loans. There's a lot that can be done to try to free up money. But let's say that realistically, you don't actually have every dollar accounted for and you have some wiggle room. Even if all you can truly afford to save is $5 out of your paycheck, I want you to do it because it's about the habit more than anything else when you're first out of college, when you're building that foundation. Because if you make savings a habit, then when the debt is paid down and you're making more money, you can easily redirect funds to build up your savings account. Now, if you're thinking, well, I'm 22, I'm not making much money, but when I'm 30 and I'm making good money, then I'll start saving. What makes you think you can easily make that lifestyle switch? It's just like thinking, I'm going to be a smoker and then just quit cold turkey. That's really not how it works. So if you build the habit now, you're setting yourself up, even if it's just $5, to be able to transition and put more money towards it in the future, as opposed to having to make an entire lifestyle shift down the road. Very, very smart advice. The book is Broke Millennial, Stop Scraping By and Get Your Financial Life Together. Will you leave us with a couple of copies to give away? Absolutely. All right. We will be giving them away. So send us an email. Tell us why you're a broke millennial and why you need to change that immediately. And we'll get a couple of Aaron's books out to our listeners. Thank you for being with me. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And we'll be right back with Kelly. Thank you so much, Erin, for coming in. And Kelly has joined me in the studio to make a little change here. I know you and Erin are very good friends. Yes, I'm lucky to call her a friend now. We've had some dinners and I met her at FinCon as well. And we've just carried the relationship forward. That's what's really nice about the personal finance community in New York. There's a lot of camaraderie and you make some friendships through it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So. We're, we're cheering for her with Absolutely. this book. You've got questions. We've got answers. We do. We do. My first question or our first question is from Katie Scarlett Brandt on Twitter. And I think that's such a pretty name. Well, you, Katie Scarlett, you know where that's from. 
Uh-oh. No, uh, I oh don't. Oh, my goodness. Uh-oh. Oh, Uh-oh. my goodness. So anybody of my age, I feel very old today. Everybody <laughs> of my age is just going, oh, my God. I, you, the next time you're at my house, we're going to have to sit for three hours and watch Gone with the Wind. Oh, my goodness. Katie Scarlett Did O'Hara. Just, oh. Her father used to, Katie Scarlett. He would do it with an Irish accent, which I can't do. I'm sure Aaron, with her acting degree, could. But, um, yeah. I think the last time I... I saw that movie was maybe when I was four years old. Yeah, you need to rewatch it. I'm overdue. Okay. Well, oopsies. Um, She tweeted asking, what's the best use of credit card points, paying down your balance, or making purchases on points, products slash services list? Hmm. So I would say that it depends. Generally, if you have a balance, you're probably better off not having a rewards credit card. And the reason for this is that rewards credit cards tend to be both more expensive and charge higher interest rates than non-rewards credit cards. So they make the most sense for people who have absolutely no balance at all. That said, if you're the kind of person who does pay off every single month, usually using them to buy either flights or hotel rooms is going to get you the biggest bang for the buck. But there's so many different offers out there right now that I would say run the actual cost against each other. It's very, very easy. And especially if you go on a site like thepointsguy.com, which our friend Brian Kelly runs, it's very easy to put an actual value on your points, you know, a penny a point is is very, very commonplace. And then you can see if by using them to pay off your balance, you're getting a better value by using them. You should actually take the time to do the math and, and run the numbers. I don't know who your card is set up with, but I have my credit card, one of my credit cards through my bank, and they actually give me more money when I use it to transfer um, or turn the points into paying down the debt or putting into my savings, I think they they add on a small percentage to that. They like incentivize me doing that. Yeah, no, that's great to know. Mm -hmm. And sometimes with different cards, if you use your card or your points to buy travel, you get 50% Mm -hmm. of the points back. So Kelly and I are talking in big generalities here. And the idea is that you have to look at the terms of your particular card, your particular points. Hayden on our team is looking into the idea of stacking the way that you shop Mm -hmm. in order to maximize your points even more. So we'll have her come in and and give us a lesson on that on a future show. We should get on the show. She hasn't come on yet. Okay, well, our next question is an email from Kaylee that I think so many listeners will be able to relate to. It sounds like Kaylee is making great financial moves for her future. She recently opened a retirement savings plan. She has a good emergency cushion. And she's now putting money towards short-term goals like buying an apartment or retraining for a potential career change. She writes, after years of living paycheck to paycheck as a student slash intern, I'm happy and empowered to finally be on solid financial footing with a good long-term perspective until I open the newspaper and feel like the world as we know it is about to go down in flames and it's completely (laughs) pointless. And then I hear things like housing markets and the stock markets are doing great and have no idea what to think. My whole adult life has been in recession slash crisis times and I notice myself feeling paranoid that any good economic news is just the precursor to a disaster. Gene, I need some 
some tips on how to filter out the information that is going to help me make sensible and rational financial decisions and where to find it. Okay. All right. So, you know, it's it's interesting that this is in our show that we did with Aaron and Mm -hmm. talking about millennials because this is a very millennial mindset that, of course, you feel like the world is going to crater. You graduated college during a recession. It's been very rocky since. It seems to continue to be rocky, although we're on slightly better footing than, than we were. I graduated from college in 1986. And then in 1987, the sky fell, the same. Here is what I've learned. Turn off the television, close the newspaper, tune out the noise, and then automate yourself into making good decisions that will happen when you are emotional behind the scenes. So as long as you continue to save, as long as you continue to invest those savings in a diversified portfolio that makes sense for you, as long as you have some sort of mechanism going on in the background, whether it's a target date fund or a managed account or a robo-advisor or an actual advisor, to Keep your portfolio in balance. You could do it yourself, certainly. But again, we want it to happen whether or not you're emotional at the time. And then you just keep doing it. You are going to be fine. You're going to be fine. And on the days where you're having trouble sleeping, watch Gilmore Girls. You know, <laughs> don't don't turn on the news. Right. Just Just don't. Well, even when, let's say, there's not a crisis happening and we're trying to stay informed. I know my friends ask me this a lot because they use Facebook to get their news and there's the controversy of like, what's real news? What's fake news? And it, there's so much information and there's so many sources to get information. What are some of the journalists or publications that you use for market coverage so that we can kind of go directly there and know we're getting the facts, the information we do need to know without all of the entertainment that is infused with it. Okay. So I am a big consumer of media. As you know, I read the Wall Street Journal. I read the New York Times. I think the money section of USA Today does a very, very good job of putting out there what you need to know and filtering out what you don't. I like Marketplace on NPR. Mm I like CNBC once or twice during the day, but I don't spend hours and hours with it. A little bit here and there is really all you need. And if you are going to give yourself a couple of must-reads or must-listen-tos in addition to her money, (laughs) of course, course. um, Jason Zweig in the Saturday Wall Street Journal, Ron Lieber in the... Saturday New York Times, Tara Siegel Bernard in the Saturday New York Times when she is writing and and she and Ron tend to alternate a little bit. That's it. You're Mm -hmm. done. You're done. And then you, you just put it on automatic pilot. It's not about managing the economy. Right. When we hear all of this noise around us, all the political noise, all the economic noise, the question to ask yourself is, what can I do about this? And the answer is 
absolutely nothing. nothing. You can't do anything about it. So you control what you can control, and that's your own personal economy. You control your savings rate. You control your diversification. You control whether or not you turn off the television. Mm-hmm. And really, that's all it takes. Yep. Um, I, I have, I mean, I'm not old, but I have been through a lot of rocky markets yeah. and rocky markets just happen. And we look out into the world today and we think, oh my God, oh, uh, you know, every day. I know. And I think people are falling into one of two camps. You either can't turn the media on or you can't turn the media off. Mm-hmm. And you've got to ask yourself if whichever camp you're in is helping you or hurting you. And if, if it's causing you even to not be able to sleep well at night, you've got to turn it off because lack of sleep, and we talked about this a lot in Age Proof, lack of sleep is really bad for your A, health, but also your decision-making ability and your career. So look at how you're consuming media mm-hmm. and go from there. Thank you. You are very, very welcome. And uh, thanks for the questions. As always, let's tell people how to reach us. We are on jeanchatsky.com. We are also on all forms of social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, but we're finding we get the majority of questions through our site. And so I think using the podcast box on our site is probably the best way. And we're going to do a better job about getting back to everyone. So let's, let's send them there. That sounds perfect. Thank you, Kelly. In our Thrive segment today, sometimes I've got good timing and sometimes my timing is a little bit off. And it was a little bit off when I talked to you a couple of episodes ago about how great a program student loan forgiveness happens to be. The education department in a legal filing about a month ago, a little more than a month ago, has now let it be known that people really need to be careful when knowing whether or not to trust that their student loans will qualify for debt forgiveness. I know that this is going to raise a considerable number of alarms. It has been duly covered by Ron Lieber in the New York Times. It was a trending topic. Borrowers are panicked and the government is not saying enough. So I just want to take a moment and walk through very clearly what you have to do as far as we know to qualify to have your loans forgiven. There are four basic things that have to happen in order for you to not only get into the loan forgiveness program, but stay in the loan forgiveness program. So as we mentioned, you got to make 120 payments, in other words, 10 years worth of payments in time and in full And you have to be working full-time in order to qualify. So you've got to make the right number of payments. You also have to have the right kind of employer. And this is where things are getting a little bit dodgy. What we have been given in the past from the Department of Education is guidance that basically says as long as you work for the government or work for a company that is a non-for-profit in that it has 501c3 status, you should be eligible. So now we've got some employees working for some non-traditional not-for-profits and 
the education department is saying, well, whoa, maybe this one doesn't qualify. And therein lies the panic. And it's totally justifiable. So here's what you need to do. You need to make sure that you are looking for qualification of your loan every single year. You want to be applying every single year into the program. We are looking and we will continue to report on clarification of what is a qualifying not-for-profit company to get you into loan forgiveness. We don't have it at this point beyond what I have already stated, and I apologize for that. I wish there was more detail that I could give you. I don't have it yet, but you just have to make sure that every single year you are checking in on the Education Department website and making sure that your loan qualifies. You also have to make sure you have the right kind of loan. And this means a direct loan. Private loans do not qualify for this. Direct loans. And that word direct has to be in the title of your loan. And finally, you want to be making the right kind of payments. So these sorts of programs are structured for people who are in some kind of income-driven repayment program. They couple that with loan forgiveness and make the payments for 10 years, 120 payments, as I said, in full and on time, and you should be okay. I apologize that I can't give you more data than this at this moment. We will try to bring you somebody from the Department of Education to clarify, but until we do, if you're in this program, I just want you to have a heads up that you need to make sure that you are indeed qualified to be in this program. And I wish I had better news to send you off today, but right now I just don't. I want to thank everybody for being with me today. I hope you enjoyed this show and my conversation with Aaron Lowry as much as I did. Thank you, Aaron, for joining me for a terrific conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at iTunes. Please leave us a review. I know I say that all the time, but if you haven't done it yet, reviews are really important. They make people pay attention to what we're doing here. So if you haven't done it, please do it. We want to know what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. And join me next week when Bill Burnett, the Stanford University professor who is the author of a wonderful book called Designing Your Life, is with us. He is applying the principles that he teaches in his very popular design course to Yes, as it sounds, your life. So join us then. We'll talk soon.